Welcome. It's great to get together and study the Word of God. And what we want to do is just keep searching the Scriptures, seeing what God said, and learning and explaining the Scriptures and helping each other understand what God said. So we'll begin with prayer and start in on Acts. Thank you, dear Lord, for your goodness and kindness and mercy. Thank you that we can pray for one another. We pray for the people that are hurting and sick right now and grieving. The Lord be with everyone who we know who's suffering and lonely seniors that need help, seniors that have no one to talk to. Pray for each other here. Give us grace and mercy and understanding. And above all, may your word penetrate our hearts and may we see what you've done and said and what your promises are. We turn this over to you as we discuss it in Jesus' name. Amen. So God has spoken. I want to make a statement as we begin about why it's so important that we search the scriptures and be Bereans. The Holy Spirit inspired the biblical authors. And God has spoken, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Uh, Therefore, if we believe what God said, understand what God said, God will use that in a powerful way to change us and encourage us and give us hope. And so nothing's more powerful than what God has said. I have a lot of material here. We'll start here, but I want to show you late, later how Luke is laid out because uh, lately I've been able to recover some material I did a while back. By the way, thank you for allowing me to p- preach on the prodigal son material from now 12, 13 years later. Several people said it was helpful to them, and I'm glad to hear that. Are you lacking a signal? Nope, you got it now? That's the number one thing to know about electronics. On is better than off. (laughs) I miss that one myself a lot of times. Last week, we couldn't figure out why we didn't give a signal. Well, there was was a mic cable. Always start with a simple. Okay, so today, what is God telling us through Luke's narrative of Luke Acts? Now we're in Acts 18. We covered some of this. Apollos is on the forefront here and then Priscilla and Aquila in various places that the gospel went so we covered this but if there are other things that we want to discuss I want to put this out there for us to look at Acts 18.23 having spent some time there he left and passed successively through the Galatian region and Phrygia strengthening the disciples. So these are previously established churches, and Paul is building them, strengthening them. One of the things we pointed out is that Luke has a very, very strong vocabulary, and you can see that from the number of words that are found in Luke Acts, that are unique to Luke Acts, and it shows that Luke really was well-educated. He was articulate in the Greek language, Alexandrian Greek. We'll talk about that. 
And so God used Luke, who was a traveling companion of Paul, therefore an eyewitness to some of the things, or he heard it from accounts from others who were eyewitnesses when he wasn't there. These churches were previously established, and so they're being strengthened. And this is used also, this verb sterizo is used in Luke 9.51, where Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Brian. And a few weeks ago, you used the uh, Isaiah 57 uh, as an example of setting your face, a determined was the word. Yeah, you used. it's a word that's used in the Old Testament for prophets. A prophet would set his face like flint. So Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem. Before we're done, I want to show what I recovered from material on that, the reverse parallel structure of the entire travel narrative. And then within that, there's other literary structures that are amazing. I showed Brian earlier because he got here early, and I want to see if we can even see it here. It'll blow you away when you see how God inspired the Scripture and for us to learn. So set his face. So I'll read some passages here, Isaiah 50, 5 through 7. Isaiah 50, 5 through 7. The Lord has opened my ear. I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I gave my back. This is, uh, by the way, a prophetic statement about Christ. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. Isaiah 50 and verse 7, for the Lord God helps me, therefore I'm not disgraced. Therefore I've set my face like flint and I know I will not be ashamed. That is from Isaiah 55 through 7, Messianic Scripture. This is quite profound. I'm tempted to show that travel narrative right now. Let's suppose we can do more than one thing at once. Let's just quickly put that up there. But wasn't that Isaiah reference? It wasn't 55, Bob, was it? I think it was 50. 50. Yeah. Okay. Did I say that or I say 50? Who knows? It's 50. Let me... I can start this over again. I'm going to minimize this. Let me show you something right now that was reco- I recovered it just this last couple of weeks. And in order to show you this, this is an older PowerPoint, like the ones I recovered from the prodigal son. This is the entire reverse parallel structure of the tra- travel narrative. At the beginning, it starts at Luke 9.51, and then it goes to the center, which is in Jerusalem. So here's Jerusalem, where it starts. Jerusalem, in the middle, that's uh, Luke 13.22-35, and then at the end, Jerusalem, who rejects the prophets. And you see that all the way. And so there's a reverse structure. Follow me. Whoops. Follow me. It's just amazing. It is amazing. 
And what's in the middle of it is really something. I'm not enough of a language expert to make such judgment, but some people have said that Hebrews and Luke is a good this quality of Greek literature as you'll find anywhere in the ancient world. Now look at how, so that was the big picture, the reverse parallel. Look at the middle of it, which is Luke 13, 22 to 35. Here you have a smaller version of the same thing. Enter by the narrow door, thrust out of the kingdom. You will see Abraham, Messianic banquet. Herod wants to kill you. And then in the middle, the A's, today, today, tomorrow, the third day, today, tomorrow, the coming day. And then verse, the, uh, the part on B with the hash mark, um, die away from Jerusalem, Messianic banquet delayed, your house is forsaken, you will not see me until, and then you say, blessed are you come in the Lord, in the name of the Lord. So I'll give you the big picture. I realize this is a lot of material. This study I did over 10 years ago and laid this material out with the help of Kenneth Bailey and other scholars. Luke Acts leaves open the, the reality that at some future unknown time, they will see Messiah. So Messiah is setting his face like Flint to go to Jerusalem to be rejected. And I believe that's picked up in a different way in Acts. And that's, it's really amazing. Brian. To me, this is proof of the uh, Holy Spirit's inspiration on the biblical writers, because we'll just take Luke here with these uh, uh, chiastic structures, reverse structures, yeah. and then and then structures within the structures. Now we've had great writers throughout history, but nobody writes like this on their own. Not only that. If you look at Genesis to Revelation in the, the thematic uh, unity, things there are ideas in Luke that aren't fulfilled till Acts, but there's ideas in Genesis that aren't fulfilled till Revelation. And the, the data, the facts that are coinciding with things that are provable in history the facts are on the side of believing that the gospel is true. The Bible's inspired by the Holy Spirit. God has spoken. And no human uh, clever person would have figured it out. And God has revealed to us who believe things that angels desire to look into. It's so amazing. So let me, I just got this ready. So look at this one. You know how it came up. Luke 9, 51 to 53. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, here's something else to think about. In Luke, on the Mount of Transfiguration, they were talking about his literally exodus that he was about to accomplish. So there's a new exodus, referring back to Moses, 
who's on the mount? Moses and Elijah. His exodus. So here, this taken up is this travel narrative. He's going up to Jerusalem. And I showed you a slide about that. You go up to Jerusalem from just about anywhere else in, in their world. And so he's going up to Jerusalem, but he's going up even further than Jerusalem. He's going ultimately up and ascending to heaven at the end of Luke and then the beginning of Acts. So he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans. Now look at, I have that in green there. What does it say in Acts? What's the Great Commission? You'll be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What did they believe about Samaritans? Not good, right? And so if we can't understand that, then a lot of things don't make sense. The good Samaritan, that's an oxymoron in their world. There's no good Samaritan. The point is that those people that are most disgraced and dishonorable are the ones, some of which God will save, and which is one of the main reasons Jesus was rejected. Because no way could he go there. So they did not receive him. So the Samaritans rejected him. Why? Because his face was set toward Jerusalem. But it wasn't just the Samaritans who wouldn't receive. By the way, the word receive is decomai, which in Luke Acts means welcome. They wouldn't welcome him. Why? Because you're going to Samaria. So the Jews rejected him. The Pharisees rejected him. The scribes, the Sadducees, the rulers, Samaritans. He's going to be rejected. Who would go on a journey to be rejected and shamed in that world? Only God who bore the shame so that we could become honored sons and daughters and we don't really deserve that status. And so that's the message. So now let's go to the middle. There's the beginning, okay? Luke 9.51, the beginning of the travel narrative. He set his face. That means he's determined. Why would you go somewhere to be rejected in an honor-shame society where rejection is what you don't want? Now, here's the middle. I showed you the bigger thing. Now, this word must here, day, in Luke is generally divine necessity. Most times it's used. Now, here's the very middle of it. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day. Look at this. Look at what it says. For it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. Why would he say that? No, prophets have perished elsewhere, but at the sense is Jerusalem in Luke Acts is the place that rejects the prophets that are sent. And that'll come up later as we go through. So the intent. Now, why would that be important? Because of what happens later. This can't be the Messiah because it was rejected. Isn't he supposed to come and conquer the enemies, establish the kingdom? Isn't this the son of David? Isn't this the one who will be the great glorious king? Now, yeah, that's for the future advent. 
he's going to be rejected. So that's the main thing that's on the table in Acts because when they were searching the scriptures in Berea, when Stephen gave his speech in Acts 7, throughout Acts, the scriptures are searching was how could Messiah be truly the Messiah, but he's rejected by our own leadership? The answer is, the scriptures predicted it. Go ahead. No, MacArthur's commentary, he's, he mentions that, uh, in MacArthur's commentary, he mentions that the uh, most of the uh, even Old Testament prophets were martyred at the hands of the uh, Jewish people. Right. And when Eric's going through Matthew, we see God used people that they wouldn't have expected. If you look at the genealogies, there's some people in there that wouldn't help your cause if you had them in your genealogy. So why? Because God uses the things that are not to confound the things that are. Let's go one more here. Okay, so here's the first part of that reverse parallel. He said his face to be rejected. Here's the middle. Uh, prophet cannot be a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. Here's the end. Luke 19, 41 to 42. And there's some uh, smaller structures within that. When he approached Jerusalem. Now, if you're reading, if you're a student reader of Luke, you know where he's going to be rejected beginning, middle, end. Those are the emphatic places. He approached Jerusalem. He saw the city and wept over it. If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. Divine passive by God. But it's not the end because there's an until that comes up later in Acts. So I reject amillennialism or replacement theology out of hand. It is not biblical. God keeps his promises, even if to a remnant. There was a promise, according to Romans 9, 10, and 11, made ultimately to Abram, Abraham, and it's still in effect, even though it would be ultimately a remnant. So let's, let's look at verses 43 to 44. Luke 19. Okay, there was 41, 42. Here's 43, 44. This is the end of that travel, part of the travel narrative. For the days will come, this is Jesus predicting the destruction of the temple. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. The time of visitation is a significant concept in the Bible. When God visits, there's usually, in fact, always salvation and judgment. And somewhere, I think I have an article published about that. So there's your travel narrative, and it's laid out 
just as it says, Jerusalem, eschatological events, Jerusalem. So that should put this in the bigger picture. So now what's happened? Jesus ascent to Jerusalem to be rejected, and then the then the resurrection in Luke twenty four, and then he ascends before witnesses all the way into heaven at the right hand of God. Now let's get back to what we were doing here. Strengthening. So as we go forward here, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now here's the same word, which is kind of unusual, used, that was used in Luke 9.51, is used in Acts 18.23. So back to where we were. I wanted to lay that out there because it really helps us understand how Luke writes. And, and there's nothing more powerful than what the author of the Holy, the Holy Spirit inspired the authors of the Bible. There's nothing more powerful than what God said, if we believe it. The Holy Spirit comes to us through the Word, which is was Luther's major claim at the Reformation. I believe it's correct. We might say, well, we want it to mean, but that doesn't help us. What he does say will pierce us to the heart. So that's why if we can understand the author's meaning, God uses that and it'll convince us of the truth or it'll harden us if we don't like the truth. And that's exactly what we saw. So now, well, many uh, people called this the beginning of Paul's third missionary journey. And that's what the caption there says. I think that's his third missionary journey. So Antioch is where things began. There's Galatia and over to Ephesus, I believe. This is important for us to realize as well. Ephesus becomes a very, very important place in the New Testament. Let me just read this. this, These are the slides that I bought a whole series of. They were on sale. Paul's third journey began with him visiting churches he had founded on earlier travels. As with the first two journeys, he was sent out by the church in Antioch. And then there's some attribution there. So now where we need to go to look at Apollos. Now, a Jew named Apollos an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus and was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. Now, This really helps. I had a class in seminary that helped me so much. The author is telling us 
who is to be seen favorably. That's what I said here. Apollos isn't the problem. What's different between Apollos and some of the other people in Acts who end up leaving, never coming back, rejecting it? Apollos is portrayed by Luke favorably. How does that help us? There's an intersection in the Bible between Acts, Ephesians, 1 Corinthians. For example, I'm a Paul, I'm a Paulus. Paulus wasn't actually creating a sect within the church that followed him. Paul makes that clear. Luke makes it clear. He was willing to learn. What the deficiency was is still discussed, but whatever it was, he was willing to learn. So notice the terms that are used for Apollos. First one, eloquent. Logias, and there, that means someone eloquent, learned, or it could mean an orator, and so on. So that is a term that Luke uses so that we know that Apollos is to be seen favorably. Mighty in the scriptures. The word mighty there is also important. Powerful. And it's an adjective based on dunamis, which is power. Dunatas would be the adjective. So he was powerful in the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. It was Fervent, and there's another word, uh, zealot or zealous or boiling. Teaching, he was speaking and teaching accurately. Another important term, and I have printouts of these things, but maybe I don't want to get sidetracked either. If you look at Acts 18, 25, and 26, this term accurately is used twice. And let me just read verse 25. The man, the, this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. We have it up here. But then the next verse, he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But then a Priscilla and Aquila appear, which we'd seen earlier, and took him aside and explained the way of the Lord more accurately. There's the term again. Yes. Uh, is a, do I remember correctly that uh, evidence points some evidence points to Apollos being the author of uh, Hebrews? Uh, we've talked about that, but that's not clear. But that, it's a possibility, or maybe likely. That, that's what some people have thought. But since Apollos is not mentioned, it's, I don't think so. And I've read a lot about it. The trouble is when you're teaching Hebrews, it's hard to say who wrote it because we don't really know. And I remember doing a radio series on that some decades ago, the author of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews. It gets kind of tiresome. And so I now have a new commentary on Hebrews. And the author calls, of the commentary, calls whoever wrote Hebrews the pastor. That's a nice way to do it. If we knew it was Apollos, I would say so. But here's what we can say for sure. The uh, very fluent, eloquent 
erudite understanding of the Greek language would be in keeping with Alexandrian Judaism. Alexandria was a center of learning and scholarship. The Septuagint, which we mentioned, by the way, that doesn't mean we believe there, the myth of this epistle of Aristeus that said that uh, 70 or 72 different scholars went into their own little cubicles and they wrote a Greek Old Testament and they came out and they all matched, they were identical. That was the intertestamental story that came out. But I don't believe that, but I do believe that that version of the Greek Old Testament that was written by Jews from Alexandria is quoted and cited throughout the New Testament. So there's no reason to downgrade this amazing thing that happened, not to mention the fact that some of the extant versions of this Greek Old Testament have been found that predate the time of the New Testament, and it gives us evidence that many of these things weren't contrived by the church. They already existed. Many, many important things, including the, De- the Hebrew Dead Sea Scrolls, also provide that evidence. The evidence for the accuracy of the history, the quality of the writing, is so profound that the liberals, after all these excavations revealed these things in the 20th century, dropped it and went over to mysticism. Okay, so not only can you not, before the higher critical analysis said, oh, you can't believe this, you can't believe that, you can't believe the other thing, God doesn't do miracles, let's just have blind faith. Well, then these things are mythological, they couldn't have happened. I was told that as a teenager by three different ordained ministers that said there are no miracles, so I left Christianity until I was converted. However, that was just proven by history. Dear ones, objective truth is our friend. We don't need an altered state of consciousness to be Christians. And what God did, what God said, and that will never harm us if we, unless we rebel against it. So what happened was once that went by the wayside, by all the discoveries that proved that the Bible was accurate, and I show you pictures that demonstrate that, then comes emergent, or the seeker movement, or whatever, anything besides learning what God said. Well, all language is, if it's not absolute, then you can't believe any language. Reality is a state of mind. That was the emergent. But that doesn't work. You know why it doesn't work? They write books proving that words can't convey meaningful ideas that are transferred from the writer to the reader. So, but once they write the book and you understand what they're saying, they disprove their own claim. And I wrote a book about that on emergent. They expect you to understand their books. So if you have an an argument that disproves your own claim, you have a really dumb argument. Okay? 
I don't believe words convey meaning. Well, there's still pe politicians do that. Religious people do that. The Eastern meditation. Better felt than tell. No, whatever you felt, they can't be telt. I know that's not grammatically correct. Definitely, I'm not Apollos. <laughs> well, you're telling me something. One time, uh, a, a mystic that came to a different church version of the church here in this building at that time said, well, I'm going to leave the church. Why? Well, I had a dream. Okay. Well, what was the dream? Well, it, it was, I, you can't describe it in words. Okay, so you had a dream that you can't describe in words. So what's the meaning of it? Well, it means I have to leave. Well, so you got a concept that you have to leave through a dream that can't be described in words. You can make decisions however you want to make decisions. But how can you describe in words what can't be described in words? <laughs> Here's, yeah, amen. Uh, think about this. If we believe the Bible is literally true, which I do, if we can understand it, the Tower of Babel would have never done what God designed it to do. Okay, so they're building the tower, I believe, to contact the gods that God had separated them from tangibly through Noah, the, time, the judgment of Noah. God confused the language. They couldn't build their tower, so they had to disperse, and we had national boundaries, the table of nations. If emergent was right, what God did wouldn't have worked. You don't need words. You just visualize. Oh, yeah, mortar, brick. <laughs> See, when you're, when you're unable to communicate, you're unable to function. Okay? In instinct doesn't work for humans. Like, in, what, did, what does it say about false teachers? Like instinctive beasts. Instinct doesn't work. That's why Babel became Babel because they couldn't communicate. So what we have before us is the Holy Spirit inspired scripture telling us that Apollos and Alexandrian eloquent, that's in keeping with what's known in history, even beyond what's just biblical statements there is clear evidence that Alexandria, there were Jewish scholars in Alexandria who were very well skilled, very scholarly. And here is Apollos, an Alexandrian Jew who was eloquent. And it fits with what we know. Did he write Hebrew? Some have speculated, but we can't be sure. But from what I understand, Hebrews and Luke Acts are two of the finest works in the Greek language that are extant. So that's for our, us to contemplate. Now it says he was acquainted only. So he was accurate. He was bold. He was accurate about Christ, but he only was acquainted with the baptism of John. Now what will come up is material about some others who didn't even have the Holy Spirit but were baptized. Uh, yes, Paul. Uh, second, 
I believe in First Corinthians chapter five verse twelve says we're not to judge the outsiders. God will do that at the last judgment, but inside the church we are to judge or use logic or whatever. Wouldn't this be a good example of that? The judgment according to Scripture has to be accurate and biblical, and there has to be two or three witnesses. Two or three witnesses are important. It's in the Old Testament. It's in Matthew 18. So I think in that case, weren't they suing each other? I'm not, I'm not that far into First Corinthians as far as my preaching through it, but Western civilization is grounded in having fair trials, which seem to be more rare all the time, and objective evidence and witnesses. Is that not what you were trying to get at? Otherwise, find the verse and... Uh, no, that's not what I was kind of referring okay, to. go ahead. Not a, less legalistic, but a kind of quality control, you might say, of uh, you're not saying the word, like, like you and, and uh, pageant and, and uh, all the other uh, different ways in which people get caught up into what's really not... Uh, oh, okay. Objective. Okay. Yeah. I, I debated Doug Paget, which providentially was amazing that it ever happened. But it's almost... Im- <laughs> I guarantee that wasn't me. Oh, they're trying to get it to work. Okay. Something worked, though. I like that. Um, here, that was one of the more interesting debates I was ever in, was with Doug Paget, Because he's telling us that language and logic and objective reality are not valid. That there is this process going on that somehow is emerging into a better reality based on the philosophy philosophy of Hegel and Marx and others, depending on their version of Hegelian panentheism. And so how do you debate somebody who doesn't believe that words are meaningful? So here's the debate, and there were questions. And so I use an illustration in the debate. Say, well, you can say that these categories described by words are not really valid, but when you leave the room, you don't go through the wall, you go through the door. So door and wall are not the same thing, and our ability to define them is the basis of communication. His response, now, first he went off on something else, and then eventually when he got back to it, he says, radio waves go through the wall, and they went on to something else. That's equivocation. That is textbook equivocation. We were talking about a human with a real body. He switches categories to radio waves, and then he was on to something else, so I didn't, couldn't get back to it during the debate. But listen, if he's right about radio waves, that they don't obey the law of non-contradiction, how do you tune into the Twins game or the Vikings game or whatever? What is it? Uh, Nine eight. What's the WCCO? Eight three zero. Well, I think I'll listen to the Vikings or whatever. You turn to some other channel because radio waves, according to the nature of radio waves, obey the laws of non-contradiction, just like humans. But he switched categories and went off on this fallacy. 
Yes. Is it possible that it's not either or, but it's both and? I mean, we really, I mean, we can get an idea of what the script, just like in the Old Testament, the, the teachers of the law had an idea about who the Messiah was going to be, but they totally missed him because the Spirit of God was not infused in their understanding. And when Jesus came, he said that you couldn't understand the scriptures without the Spirit of God leading you. You know, I mean, there's this, I, I feel like I just see people falling into these two camps where it's like the Word of God, the Word of God, the Word of God, Spirit, Spirit, Spirit. Um, true, true, truth. Love, love, love. And it's like, it's both. Okay. It's both. You that's, know, you can't me, have one without the other. Me, and that's where I think everyone's falling apart. That's, that's something that I'm glad you brought up because I want to respond to that. The first thing we need to decide, in the case, thank you for that. In the case of Messiah, in the weeping and these things hidden from your eyes, is it that the Holy Spirit didn't inspire the incarnation in the rejection of Christ, because that's all true, or the conquering king who comes back and establishes the kingdom, because there were scriptures that taught both things. So the scriptures taught the rejected Messiah and a future return of the true Messiah. But the, uh, the more salient issue is who determines the meaning whether it's in just secular writing, birthday cards, or history, whose meaning is what we need to find. And the author determines the meaning, not the reader. That's, so that can't be both and. So if I write to someone, I would like to hire you to come and mow the lawn, and I'll pay you so much and expect you to be there a certain day. And they come and they charge twice as much. They come on a different day. Instead of mow the lawn, they wake up the leaves. If that's the way it was, we'd be back to the confusion of the Tower of Babel. Now, we can get it wrong, but when our everyday communication, if the author doesn't determine a meaning, then we can do nothing. We can't talk. We can't drive a car. We can't go take the car and fill up with gas. Well, uh, you say gas, I think it means air. It's, it's just, it's impossible. But the word of God tells us that we have to rely on the Spirit. So it's, it's here, it's like the instructions are, here's the instructions. I want you to, to put your full trust in me and to walk by my Spirit, not by the letter of the law, but by the Spirit of God. Okay. Let me, let me, uh, the question or the discussion is the Holy Spirit inspires it, but we need to depend on the Spirit. Is that correct? Is that what you're seeing? Here is the crux of the issue. The Holy Spirit inspired the scriptures, but this inspiration, as we see, is objective. So it isn't that language has some different function when it's inspired by the Spirit, as far as who, who's meaning, the Holy Spirit's role for us is whether we're willing to accept what God said. It says in Thessalonians, those who are deceived are the ones who did not welcome some version of decomai. They did not 
welcome the love of the truth in order to be saved. So the Holy Spirit's role isn't to give a new meaning to Scripture, but to convict us so that we are softened and convicted and willing to accept what God already said. Now, in my case, I thought it was all foolishness. It was the Holy Spirit who changed by his powerful work my willingness to believe it. But receiving the Spirit never gives the Scripture a different meaning. It gives us a willingness to accept and welcome what it does say. So if you don't have the Holy Spirit, I've seen people who are very brilliant and know exactly what it says, but they don't, they don't believe it. The Holy Spirit convicts us. I think I gave the example one time of this uh, Lee Rod Schultz, who I cited, was the one that drove uh, Eric out of Bethel Seminary one time. That's where I met Eric. Lee Ron Schultz, the first class he taught, was one of the last classes I had there, was on logic. And he laid out logic. Logic is neutral. And so I liked it. I learned a lot. So I went to his office. I said, look at Romans 8. Is this a chain argument? And I laid out the chain argument means if you break one point of the chain, it's a false argument. He said, yep, chain argument. If this is true, this is true, this is true, this is true. Good. Turns out he didn't. He knew that was a chain argument, but he didn't believe anything that was Christian. Now he's an atheist living, renounced Christ, renounced the Bible, renounced religion, and he's an atheist. That would be Leron Schultz. So it's one thing. Let me say it this way. The truth of something doesn't actually change. Jesus really was raised from the dead. A number of people in Matthew and in Luke and Acts are witnesses. In Matthew, the, the guards at the tomb knew the facts as well as anybody there. So what happened to the guards at the tomb in Matthew? They took money to lie about it. Everyone agreed the tomb was empty. So on one level, you could say the facts are conveyed by objective reality in human language. He was raised by God. The tomb is empty. What about the significance? That's another way of looking at it. The Holy Spirit just causes the truth to be so significant that it weighs heavily upon us. That's what I understand is welcoming the love of the truth. If something is incoherent, like emergent, there's nothing to weigh on us. So if a door, a wall, radio waves, the faith in that sort of system is that let's just be a part of it and somewhere, somehow it's all ascending to heaven, like the Tower of Babel. It's so dangerous. Yes, uh, Laverne. Anyhow, when people are converted and born of the Spirit, the Bible means what it always meant. It never changes. But it pierces us. Jesus said, when he, the Spirit, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. He will testify of me. Yeah, I just wanted to follow up with her comment because Jesus said, you must worship me in spirit 
and in truth. So you have to have both. And I know that there are some churches, they have the truth and they know the word and that's what you hear every Sunday. But, and then you have others who are, and I don't mean this in a bad way, holy rollers. So they have the Holy Spirit, but they're not necessarily connecting with the truth. And that's just from one church I visited and had that experience. But anyway, but if you combine them both, that's what he says that is necessary. And then I thought about um, Apollos, because what made him, well, he was already fervent in spirit, but the fact that he was only preaching from John, the baptism of John, but look how open he was when um, Priscilla and and uh, his wife, yeah. Here we go, no, here we go. Yeah, when he, when he came Priscilla and said... Priscilla and Aquila. And Aquila, yeah, and they enlightened him, and he accepted it, because he could have said, oh, I don't want to hear that. Right, I, that's a, let's go to that. That's a good segue. Um, some people, once they see the evidence, just get mad and, and leave. Others are smitten to the heart. If there's any gift that would be the, that's utterly necessary and profound, it's the love of the truth. The love of the truth will cause us to search the scriptures and learn and grow. And if it's a good, clear message, believe it. And that's the power of the Holy Spirit. How emotional somebody is or isn't doesn't either prove it or disprove it. There's different ways people react. Some are very stoic. Some cry. Some get excited. What happens in church history, though, is that if someone is converted in a certain circumstance, they confuse the circumstance with the work of the Spirit. I remember uh, the first group I was with was Pentecostals. I think I mentioned that last. That's that's who brought Diane's family to the Lord and told them about Christ. There's a little church across the park. However, there were some in that camp. I remember somebody I knew that was rather skeptical used to watch Jimmy Swaggart uh, sermons, and he could predict within a minute when he would start crying. I think he told me exactly what it was like. 19 minutes in, he'll start crying. Well, there's nothing that says you can't cry. And if he's preaching the truth, that's sort of how some groups are. Others are very stoic. That's not the point. I was invited at one time to go speak at Gary Gilley's church down in southern Illinois. He came up here and spoke. Great guy. Gary Gilley is a great, great teacher rock solid but every group has their own demeanor or persona or whatever it is so I went down there and the way they did things is they got their bibles their notebooks and the sermon was more like a lecture and they would take notes never saw much change of expression there wasn't it's just how they do it. And so I teach. I thought, maybe they don't like what I'm saying. Well, I'll just keep teaching. <laughs> and then when it got done, somebody would say, I took this note. Now, what did you mean by that? So they were more stoic. 
Others, like the, the, the CARES manager, Pentecostals, will be more expressive. But in the end, what, we, what do we want to know? Are we confessing Jesus Christ according to how the Bible reveals him to be? One other example, some of you remember Bert Sisler. And uh, he was born the same year my dad was. I went to his funeral. He died in his late 90s. He came, somebody brought him into church, and I was teaching about the New Age and what was wrong with it, and somebody brought him in, and he was 1983, 84. So he came in. So I'm teaching what's wrong with the New Age and why it's not from God and why it's all about the deception. And he listened respectfully, left, came back a week later, and he came up to talk to me. We had just a few people in that Sunday school class. And Bert said, I've been going to Universalist, uh, Unity Universalist Church or Christ Universalist, and I heard your lecture last week, and I decided you're right, so I want to come here. And he was there. He ended up being... Every week, he'd come down and volunteer. He taught me how to age gracefully, not that I learned it, because we want to prove what we can do. So he would come and mow the lawn at that church on 24th and Nicholas. And when he got too old to get the mower out of the back of his truck, he'd just open the back, and he would stand there. This was in kind of a tough neighborhood. Well, you would know, Julie, you remember across the street where you were uh, doing the apartments there. And he would wait, and he pretty soon somebody said, you need help? Yep. And they'd come and get it out for him. <laughs> Mow the lawn. Wait. Need help? Yep. Somebody else would put it in. I'd want to prove I could do it myself. It's, but he, the emotion wasn't there, but the commitment to the gospel was. And so he can't always know. In the end, I'll tell you what's the most important word here. See that green accurately? He knew the, the truth about Jesus and explained it accurately. Something was deficient of his understanding of the significance of baptism. Now, if you go, same word here in the next one. He began to speak out boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And then he becomes a significant figure. We can speculate about what was inaccurate, but it may have to do with the significance of Jesus' institution of baptism after Pentecost and so on. Yes. But we don't. But we God don't have control. God is fully in control. I don't believe that, in a sense. But we, we're required, or to preach the truth. We're we're called to preach the truth, but yet our words mean absolutely nothing without the Spirit of God moving in them. Period. No, they, I Full would, stop. I would say that differently. It's never wrong to speak the truth. The Holy Spirit will use the truth even when spoken by someone who personally may not believe it. But the Holy Spirit convicts us. That was Luther's claim. 
the Holy Spirit comes through the word. I think that's correct. There are cases, well, many people, if you look at testimonies, you may, uh, Brian mentioned he was in the jail. There's a Bible. A guy used it. In my case, my fiance went off to a Pentecostal retreat and came back telling me that in the end time, the rivers are going to turn to blood. That's how you convince somebody who studies science. But the Holy Spirit convicted me. So how do we know who's really the Christian? The love of the truth. Okay? So if we hunger and thirst to learn, that's the Holy Spirit. The truth should always be preached. Didn't Paul say some preach Christ out of selfish ambition? Some people for other reasons, but nevertheless, I rejoice that Christ is preached. There have been cases in the Twin Cities where people that were very significant pastors for decades eventually dished the whole thing and went off into other arenas and wanted to live for this present world. Only God knows the heart. If we love the truth, we'll come back and cling to it. Quickly, let's let's talk about Aquila and Priscilla and Priscilla and Aquila. One of the things I noticed when going back in Luke, in the parables, Jesus uses parables where in one case, a woman loses her coin. In another case, a man, as a shepherd, loses a sheep. And there's these couplets all the way through. I can't prove this one, but it's interesting to me that the theme of Acts is that God has predicted this on the day of Pentecost. This is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. That in the last days, Joel 2.28, and it mentions all different kinds of people, sons, daughters, fathers. Somebody want to look that up? I think I've got it here. Yeah, old man. And so... Luke's theme is that God is at at work. And so who prophesied in early in Luke? Anna, Mary, others that you wouldn't expect, Zacharias, Simeon. How do you know what Luke's telling us? Here's how Luke does that. The Holy Spirit came upon Simeon, and then he speaks, and what he says is about the coming of messianic salvation the holy spirit was poured out at pentecost the the issue isn't oh they spoke in tongues or they did this although that proved that god was at work they spoke the mighty deeds of god they spoke about christ so luke is telling us that when the holy spirit comes on someone they proclaim the mighty deeds of god think about first corinthians 14 the prophets not meaning office of prophets, the one who prophesying ones using sometimes a participle may speak by one or two and let the others judge. What's being judged? The, whether this is truly biblical and it's a valid implication. Then he says, if an unbeliever comes, the church, by the way, isn't full of unbelieving seekers. The church is the aggregate of those who know Christ but people who come, 
If the truth is spoken powerfully like it was in Acts, and like Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 14, someone may be convicted. What does the Holy Spirit himself do? He convicts the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. He causes prophets to speak about him. And the one falls on his face and says, God is among you. Why? Because they're convicted by the Spirit. It's not who can raise the most money, who can get the biggest crowd, who's the most boisterous and convincing, who has the biggest stadium. It's whether Christ is preached clearly and forthrightly. And we search the scriptures. Right now, uh, we're working on some critical issues, podcasts on the authority of scripture and the priesthood of every believer. It's a key point. So if someone you wouldn't expect to understand these things looks at it and sees what God said, and we listen to what God uses that person, Simeon, Zacharias, Mary, the Mary of the Bible, not the Mary of Rome, um, Anna, and so on. So if you look up Priscilla and Aquila, I've got that somewhere. I think I'm getting old. I have to write things down, and I don't remember where I wrote them down. Um, Here's what Luke is telling us. I believe that he reinforces this all the way through Luke Acts. Aquila and Priscilla, sometimes it's Priscilla and Aquila. The order gets reversed throughout the New Testament. The importance isn't the gender, but the fact that there are two people a husband and wife who both love the truth and God used them. The purpose earlier isn't whether Anna was a woman or Simeon or Zechariah was a man. It's whether they believe the truth and speak forth the gospel. So if you look at all the usages, I don't know if I got that here. Not right here. Anyhow, we'll keep learning Uh, Let's jot down. We were on verse 26. Amazing progress. How many verses do we get through? A couple. As long as we're learning, though. If you missed it, early on we showed a reverse parallel structure. I'll try to bring that back or maybe get a printout. Let's close with prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness. May we never lose sight of what you've said and what you've done. And Lord, we pray for those who are hurting and sick and not able to come. Bring them healing, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless.